The text for um, tonight's message is uh, Ephesians chapter 4, but I have some, some thoughts before we get into the text. We're getting ready to go to the pastor's conference. It starts tomorrow, and I do ask that you, uh, I know it's already asked, but uh, I do ask you to pray for us because we go there with expectation that we're going to hear from the Lord. We know we do, we will, and we're going to hear great teaching. But each of us go there with questions and things that we want the Lord to answer or to speak to us on. And so my prayer has always been that the Lord would speak to each one of us where we have our greatest needs and, and needs His guidance. So you can add that prayer to your list. But thinking back, whenever I go to the pastor's conference, I think of the things that influenced my life. I got saved way back in the late 70s. One of the gentlemen in this church led me to the Lord, Mike Avila. And early on, I had a hang-up. I when, Well, I had lots of hang-ups. Still have hang-ups. But... <laughs> I was an intellectual, and I was raised as an intellectual, and I was raised to believe that to become a Christian was you had to die from the neck up because there's nothing there satisfying intellectually. And I, I discovered some guys like Dr. Walter Martin, a cult specialist, he had three earned degrees. He teamed up with a guy, John Warwick Montgomery, they have, he had seven earned degrees and practiced law, passed the bar in three different countries, practiced international law, no dummy. And I realized, okay, that was a lie. I was told a lie, and I believed it. But... There were lots of people that spoke in my life early in that time. There was another gentleman besides Chuck Smith, another one, Ray Stedman, and he had a church in um, Palo Alto, and, and, and it was you know, also very friendly to the hippies like Costa Mesa, but it was Palo Alto, and there was doing a lot of research there, so it, he appealed to a kind of a geeky crowd, and, and so I remember hearing lots of his messages. But one of the things that the Jesus movement brought to it, one of the things that happened back then is something the church had kind of neglected and that is out of Ephesians. It's later. It's not our text for tonight, but it did kind of kick off the text. And, and that's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, speaking of the gifts that Jesus gives to the church. Uh, 4.11, and he himself, that is speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And then it goes on to explain why. And But the key there was the work of the ministry was done by the body of Christ. And we had gotten to a place in the church where most of the ministry was done or being done by the professional class, by the pastors, the staff people. So who did the, uh, the hospital calls? Who did the go mourn with widows or widowers and, and discipleship and training? And all that was done by the, by the pastors. And one of the things that Chuck Smith and, and Ray Stebbin and these others, uh, Lewis Neely and others, they, they brought with them the idea that, hey, my job is to equip you that multiplies the ministry. If the ministry is limited to me or our pastoral staff, well, that means six of us can do ministry. But if we unleash that, which is God's design, that frees at least 600 of you to do ministry. And that's a tremendous thing that God gave to the church to get His work done. So the functioning healthy body does ministry. God has called all of you, all of us, to serve Him, to do this work. And tonight, I want to take some time in the book of Ephesians and talk really not about that specifically, but about what a healthy Christian looks like. What does it look like? What, what should we look like as we go out and minister? Now, the book of Ephesians is broken up into three parts, and this is a really short introduction to Ephesians. The first three chapters have been said, this is, God is basically telling us what he has done for us, and then we have three chapters of how we respond. Another way I've seen it divided into three parts is uh, the wealth, the walk, and the warfare. Wealth, the riches of God, has bestowed upon us the walk of the believer, and then spiritual warfare. Another famous teacher breaks it into sit, walk, and stand. We are seated in heavenly places. We are to walk worthy in Ephesians chapter 4, and then stand in the full armor against the enemy. So sit, walk, stand. Those are all great overviews. Now you know the entire book of Ephesians, so you can leave from here uh, fully taught. Not really. But no matter how you divide it, you still have this first section that, that explains to us what God has done for us. And then the next section is, well, how do we respond? What does that do to us? How should we grow in that? God is always the initiator. He, he always does the work first, and then leads us into that. Now, since God is always an initiator, and we are then based uh, the responder, we see that God so loved that he gave, right? He did something for us. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus said to Nicodemus, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. 
I am lifted up. He is crucified. Through that act, he was going to draw men to him. So there's always this step that God takes first, and then we respond. And that's kind of how Ephesians is, is set up. But at the time of this writing, when Paul's writing this, Ephesus is facing some pretty, it's a pretty bad situation. It's not maybe that much different from, from where we are today. Probably a lot worse, but still some of the same things we're facing. The Roman Empire was shaken by political instability, the civil unrest, high crime. People were calling for radical change. Sound familiar? Half the population was slaves. They had sunken into hopelessness. No hope of economic freedom, right? So half the population was underclassed, except for a small population of wealthy aristocrats. Most of the people lived just above the poverty line. Farmers, merchants, tradespeople, and laborers. The moral situation was even worse. The city of Ephesus was the center of worship for the goddess Diana of the Ephesians. Worship of Diana of the Ephesians involved prostitutes, men dressing up as women, taxes, a, a bad situation. The soldiers were known as being ruthless. The emperor Nero, known for savagery, decadence. Paul was a prisoner of Caesar, as he wrote in, his, in this letter. And he's waiting to be summoned to present his defense before Nero. He's permitted to live in his own rented home, and he's chained to an armed Roman soldier. He knew the situation of Ephesus and of Rome, and he knew the trials and difficulties that faced the Christians in the city of Ephesus. So what's he going to write to them? What's he tell them? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians is this masterpiece of doctrine and conduct. It stands alone by itself. The book of Ephesians is doctrinally um, solid. It's full of great truths and golden nuggets. And tonight, I want to go through one of those little nuggets. So, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, and with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Father, as we get into this text, I pray you would, again, open our eyes to the things you want us to know. Teach us, Lord, what it is to walk worthy and to, be, to bear the honor of the name Christian. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what's Paul's answer for them? To how are they going to thrive in this situation with all this going on? His answer? Live a life worthy of the calling. Live up to your calling. Listen to the Scriptures and obey. Don't deviate from the plan that Jesus has set down from the beginning. Now, in this, we're going to read some key words and phrases. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing one with one another in love, endeavoring to keep unity. That's to be our attitude and our character. But Paul doesn't just preach this. He also lives it as an example. Two years, he has been in the prison in Caesarea. He had been sent to Rome, a perilous sea journey that ended up in a shipwreck in Malta. Finally, he ends up in Rome as a prisoner. And as a prisoner in Rome... He writes the letter to the Ephesians, uh, as well as his letters to the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He never refers to himself as a prisoner of Caesar. He always refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. You see, Paul understood something that we need to know and be reminded of, because above Caesar was the Lord. He trusted his faith. He trusted his life to the Lord of Caesar, the Lord of the universe. He's not in prison because Caesar wanted him there. He's in prison because God wanted him there. Proverbs 21.1 reminds us of this. The, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns wherever it wishes. So Caesar, Caesar may think he's in control, but in reality, he just is doing the Lord's work without knowing it. Paul saw beyond the chains, beyond the Roman guard, beyond the world situation, beyond the political process, 
even the coming trial and to the end of his life. Beyond all that, he sees the hand of Jesus overseeing all of that. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look to the things which are seen, but to the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul writes this because he, he wants us to know our lives are in very capable hands far beyond anything that we see around us. And we get caught up in the temporary circumstances, the things that happen to us in the physical realm. And, but the things that are invisible to us are far more important and have eternal consequences. So we can't lose that. Jesus had the same attitude before Pilate. Remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 10, Pilate said to him, Are you speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Much of the trouble in the church today, church, I mean Christians, us, can be traced to the tendency to look to the seen instead of the unseen, the the material versus the spiritual. We need to not focus on the things that happen around us and put our focus and our emphasis in heaven. We see problems, we see suffering, we see hate, bigotry, injustice. And the answer is to act. Let's go form a committee, let's go march. Let's write letters, let's get politically active, let's do something, anything. We see these as remedies because they're visible, they're tangible. In our shallow thinking, I think we are treating the symptoms instead of the root problem. We're mimicking what the world does. We forget our calling. We're supposed to lead a life worthy of the calling with which we are called. And to do that, if we did that, we could change the nation, change the world by changing the hearts of the people. As a historian, Will Durant, he wrote in this 11-volume history of civilization. One of the volumes is Caesar and Christ, because, you know, it's, it's the age of the, the Roman in history when Rome was, uh, was more powerful. And there's a section in here. He says that the reform and the governing of Caesar was superficial at best. The revolution that Christ sought was far deeper than that. Christ sought to cleanse the human heart of selfish desire, cruelty, and lust. Utopia would come of itself and all those institutions that rise out of human greed, violence, and the, consequence, the consequent need for law would disappear for lack of need. Jesus wanted to change people's hearts. He wanted to save them. And then all the laws, all the oppression, all that stuff would go away because it wouldn't be there anymore. Now, Will Durant is not a, a, didn't get it all right, and, and he's not a Christian, but pretty observant for a guy who's a secular historian. A secular atheist historian. He, he also said, I think this is kind of a funny quote, he said that he didn't believe in God personally, but he so believed the importance of a belief in God that he didn't think the world would survive atheism. We have a tendency to treat the symptoms, and God wants to cure the cause, which is the human heart. I, therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you, I plead with you, walk worthy. Worthy. The, the word worthy in its adjective form means weight. The picture I have in my mind is if I put myself in a scale on one side and Jesus on the other side, what happens to that scale? Does my life measure up to the name Christian, title, the calling, the representation of Jesus? Would it measure up? I remember a story I heard a long time ago. An eagle fell out of its nest, an eagle's egg fell out of its nest, and it rolled up into a turkey's nest. And the turkey, not being the brightest of birds, just took care of the egg, hatched the egg, and the well-meaning, it cared for the little egg and the small chick. This eagle looked nothing like his brothers and sisters that were turkeys, but not knowing any better, he acted like a turkey. 
he would have continued to act like a turkey and he would have been perfectly content. Except one day, the eaglet's mother saw him, found him, took him back, and showed him who he was. And that's when he learned to act in the manner he was created to be. We too act sometimes not like Christians. We're to act worthy of the title of Christian or be Christ-like because that's what God created us to be. The moral of that story is don't be a turkey. (laughs) We are to live. Our lives should declare, they should demonstrate this life-changing relationship, this encounter we've had with Jesus Christ. And we demonstrate this with this love-filled, gracious attitude with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as Paul says here in our text. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. I get asked a lot. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to know this. What is God's will for my life? Well, you just read it. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. There's a lot of things like that in Scripture. We just kind of brush over those, kind of ignore them. I'm looking for a specific answer. Is this the girl I'm supposed to marry? Is this the college I'm supposed to go to? Is this the car I'm supposed to buy? That's not in Scripture. It doesn't say buy the 2016 Honda Accord. It does tell you to walk worthy. It does tell you to handle your finances. It does say to pray, to seek God for wisdom, get, seek counsel of other Christians, peace. There's all kinds of things that we have instructions for, but we want something specific that says this is what I'm supposed to do. And God speaks to us all the time, and we just don't hear Him. To walk worthy, to act, to look, to be a Christian. First Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter tells us, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice it says, you are that you may. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation is interesting. The United States is not a holy nation. The Christians living in the United States are a holy nation because our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. That alone, we are a, we are a separate entity. And I'm not anti, I'm patriotic as the next guy. I don't hate America. I love America. I'm, I'm thankful I was born here. But my real citizenship is in heaven. My real loyalty is there. I, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Another historian, Edward Gibbon, wrote about the collapse of the Roman Empire. He actually wrote about the entire Roman Empire, but at the end, he talks about the collapse. And Winston Churchill read this. It influenced him quite a bit, and he memorized a passage in this, and this is the passage. While the great body was invaded by open violence and undermined by slow decay, a pure and humble religion gently insinuated itself into the minds of men, grew up in silence and obscurity, derived new vigor from opposition, and finally erected the triumphant banner of the cross on the ruins of the capital. Another secular historian capturing part of what was essentially happening to the Roman Empire. It was falling because of decadence and pride and their treatment of the poor and the aristocracy hoarding money, all those things, and the decadence was destroying them. And the church was born into that, and the church changed people's hearts and lives. And it flourished. Again, from a secular historian, also an unbeliever. Now, how did the Christians do that? We don't read about these famous Christian marches. They don't protest at the Roman Senate, not writing petitions, they're not boycotting. In fact, I remember reading early on uh, when I was a Christian, the reading about the Christians that lived, they were being taken to the lions, fed to the lions in the Colosseum in the daytime. And at night, they would come out of hiding and they would find the poor and they would find the hurting and they would feed them and they would care for them. 
And they would go back into the catacombs where they would hide where they could, you know, during the day. They didn't take up arms. They didn't fight. They didn't try to overturn Rome politically. They were out of power. Humble, lowly, gentle, loving, patient, and kind. And that overwhelmed the empire. Love. Christ-like love. Everyone knows the love chapter. I read it, maybe not as often as I should, but I read it, and I try to read it about once a month. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, in my mind's eye, I, I see Paul writing this, and I see him describing Jesus. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. So you go through, and then I have an exercise I was taught a long time ago, and I put my name there. Tom suffers long and is kind. Well, I've already failed. I would encourage you, read through that chapter and put your name in there. How do you, how do you measure up? We all understand this is God's love. This is some kind of other ideal for love. If it were that common, Paul wouldn't have had to describe it, right? He would have said love like, you know, God loves, and then go on. It is so different. Paul felt compelled to explain it. Again, if we all had that kind of love, we could change the world around us. We could change the world. People would see that and they say, why are you different? What is that about you that makes you different? Well, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? He will change you too. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling uh, with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice it says to keep the unity. Work, strive, labor, endeavor to keep the unity. You realize that unity is already there. Because we're all in Jesus Christ. We're all in Christ. Jesus' priestly prayer to his Father on our behalf, recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Jesus prayed... That through the testimony of the apostles, we would, you and me, would all, and I quote, be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. We are supposed to be so unified that the world believes that God the Father sent Jesus. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them and you have loved me. So how do you think we rate as a body? Do we have that kind of unity? Do people look at us and go, oh man, Christians love each other so much, I want that. You only have to be on Facebook for five minutes or watch a YouTube video or whatever to realize that we don't do this very well. We spend time seeking to divide, to criticize, to set ourselves apart, to prove ourselves better. We're not like them. We're special. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus has this encounter with Philip. Philip famously asks Jesus to show him the Father, and Jesus responds, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus and the Father had such unity. Jesus was so transparent that when you saw him, you saw the Father. The Father just shone through him. His nature, his character, his love, his grace, his mercy. Imagine if we were so close to Jesus that we could say, that I could say, the words I say are from the Lord. Everything I do is the Lord living through me. I am so transparent that when you see me, you see Jesus. Unfortunately, if you've known me for more than five minutes, you know that's not true. 
But imagine if it were. Imagine the impact. And notice in, in Ephesians, it says here, love precedes unity. If we don't have love, we cannot have unity. It's necessary. So we're to work to labor actively to keep agreement in the Spirit in peace, and this peace will bind us together. Our love for one another is like a superglue that holds us in unity. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Going on, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There are seven ones there. Seven, the number of fullness or completeness. Paul ends this first part with unity, and he has these seven ones, the reason we have unity. One body. Here and elsewhere, the church is described as a body, is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. It's not a human institution. It's not created by man. It was created by Jesus. We're not to come up with plans. We're not to carry out orders. We're to be guided by Him. The key to the unity of the body of Christ, and we must not lose sight of this, is the body of Christ is not an organization. It's not a conglomeration of people who have come together with a set of mutually agreed terms and a contract of some kind. It's one. The life of a body begins in, in the natural world with one cell. Then it splits and becomes two and four and then, then eight and it goes on until you have a complete human. But every cell has the same DNA. Every cell is fed by the same food. It gets instructions from the same brain. It has one shared life. That distinction is missing today in the church. We strive to become organizations when we already are a body. We impose a structure on something that's already existing, and by doing so, we either prop something up that is dying, or we create some kind of monstrosity that no, no longer resembles the body of the living Lord. Paul says earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, and he's speaking of, uh, of Christ, he said, He put all things under his feet. He gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, Jesus' body, us, is filled with him. The Greek word here for fullness is literally crammed full. No empty spaces. The mystery of the ages that is revealed, Paul had the privilege of revealing, is Jesus lives in us, his church. He lives in us. And the purpose of the church is to live like it, to live so that others see it and make it obvious. Now, the thing about a body is we all have one. We all have a functioning example of a body. That should be our guide. How does a normal body function? Well, it all functions together. What would happen if my hand decided to take over? What if I'm eating dinner some evening and my hand takes this fork and decides it doesn't like the other hand and it stabs it? Now, that would be ridiculous. And if that really happened and continued to happen, I'd be locked up in a padded cell somewhere so I wouldn't harm myself or others. And we know that instinctively, we know that intuitively, the body is not supposed to do that. It's not supposed to function that way. But don't we as Christians sometimes do that? Take stabs at other Christians? Well, they don't do that like us. As we read in our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there should be no schism in the body, that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it not because of it, or one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So when someone in our body is hurting, we should pile on and hit them while they're down. Serves them right. I never liked them anyway. 
They must have done something horrible because God is judging them. They deserve it. Or when someone is celebrating, hey, I did better on that test. Why didn't I get the recognition? Why didn't I get that job? I do a better job than that person did. It's the hand with the fork stabbing the other hand. Is that you? Is that your marriage? Is that your boss or your friend stabbing one another instead of loving one another? You know, for 25 years, this church, the body, rented a space. It was not here. (laughs) Uh, We always look forward to having a building, and then we got one. That's a whole different story. But for 25 years, we did setup and teardown every week. For 15 years of that, I was in charge of setup. And, uh, and every Saturday, we'd come and set up, and every Sunday night, we'd tear down. And that wore on me. And there were times when I was unchristian in my labor for the Lord. <laughs> That's an oxymoron. But I remember one night, I was, we were doing tear down, and a bunch of people who were in leadership were standing around talking with people. And there was a small group for tear down that night, and I was getting frustrated. And I remember looking at some of them, thinking, you know, you guys should be helping. Yeah, dear brother, Bruce Bauer saw me. He must have seen it all over my face because he walked up to me and said, Tom, can I help you? <laughs> I am beyond help, actually, Bruce. Um, and I began to speak to him, and I began to chastise everyone in the room who should have been helping. He put his arm around me, and he said very gently, did you volunteer for setup? Yeah. Did they? No. Maybe you need to do what you're doing so they can do what they're doing. Now, he pitched in to help me out, which made me feel a lot better too. But lesson learned. On a side note, to accuse someone else of being judgmental, aren't you being judgmental? (laughs) Been there, done that? To To accuse somebody of being unforgiving, don't you have to be a little unforgiving to do that? To accuse someone of being unloving, are you in that act being unloving? When someone in the body is hurting, we are to surround them and suffer with them. When someone is rejoicing, we're to surround them and rejoice with them. You see, if I stand over here and point over there, I'm setting myself apart by gesture and by action. I'm saying I'm not a part of that group. They're over there. They're doing something wrong. If I can point to another part of the body and criticize, am I not causing division? Am I not separating from that which is my own body? Is that unity? Now, if I have private concerns, shouldn't I go share them in private? That's what we're supposed to do. If someone offends you, go to them privately. If they don't hear, take someone with you as a witness. Is that really how we handle things? Just being honest, I know I struggle with that. And I'm guessing that you're like me. I would much rather stand on my pedestal and from my lofty position, make my accusatory pronouncements and say, it's them, Lord. Another thought here, when you're accusing the church, someone in the church, who are you actually emulating? Jesus or someone else? There's someone who's called the accuser of the brethren. It's one of Satan's titles. Zechariah 3.1, Revelation 12.10, Job 1. So we're mimicking Satan when we criticize the body. If you're really slow, I'm going to tell you, we shouldn't be doing that. Another thing that comes to mind is when we do this, we are criticizing Jesus' bride. Now, I love my wife. I know my wife is not perfect. But if you criticize my wife, we will have words. She's my bride. We are criticizing the bride of Jesus Christ. How do you think he feels about that? Now, when something in a body goes terribly wrong and functions completely independently on its own, no longer under control of the body, we have a name for that. It's called cancer. When you get cancer, there are generally three possibilities. It gets healed, the body's restored. It gets cut out, it gets removed, 
and the body carries with it a scar probably forever. Or it grows out of control, it corrupts the whole body, and it causes the body to die. There is no such thing as Christian cancer. I've never heard anybody say, oh, that was a really good cancer. Nobody is happy when the diagnosis cancer is mentioned. So another thought, don't be a cancer. Hey, I just made two points. Don't be a turkey and don't be cancer. So <laughs> I should put that in my notes next time. Boy. Going on. One body, there is also one spirit. The power of the body is not in numbers or finances or personalities or anything that we would normally look to. The power comes from the person of the Holy Spirit. He has a role. And in, in the church, he has a role. Jesus says in John chapter 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And it goes on. So he has this role in the world to convict the world of sin. And then a few verses later, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, and therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus explains to his disciples, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He sh and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit has this role in our lives, in the body, uh, in the church. To guide us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to be with us and in us. And then give us power. The pastor of a church was standing by a fire truck, helplessly watching the, f the flames engulf the church. The firefighters worked to battle the flames, but it was obvious that the church was destroyed. A lady... A spectator approached the pastor, and after a moment, he recognized her as one of the C&Es, you know, the ones who show up on Christmas and Easter. She expressed her sympathy and tried to say a word of comfort to him. After a moment of silence, he said, I don't usually see you except at Christmas and Easter. What brings you here tonight? She said rather frankly, well, this is the first time I've ever seen the church on fire. Bad, I know. Let me add also that the Spirit's power is to do work, not for show. I heard an illustration actually at a pastor's conference years ago, and it struck, stuck with me. When you see a powerful steam locomotive, the engine, there is a lot of power there, and it's driven by steam. It is the purpose of the power in the steam is not to blow the whistle. It's to drive the engine. We can get caught up in the bells and the whistles. And what the Lord wants to do is drive the train. The Holy Spirit empowers us for work, not for show. Zerubbabel was asked when building the temple, he was contemplating how he's going to accomplish this task. And of course, we have this famous verse that I lean into a lot. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. This is the answer God gives him. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You're not going to accomplish your task with might or power. You want to do my work, you need my spirit to empower you. And this same power is available to us. So there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling. What is our one hope? Well, the redemption of everything, the return of Jesus Christ, when Christ returns in all his glory to earth, and he brings us with him, with the redeem, redemption of the world, the redemption of the earth, all of the believers, all that God is doing that Adam, well, destroyed. First John chapter 3, we read, Beloved, now we are the children of God, 
and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope, the imminent, the imminent and imminent return of Jesus Christ is our hope. God is going to bring us home someday. Jesus is going to, he's going to return, take us to this wonderful feast in heaven. That is a great hope. I tell you, there are times when I look around at the world, I see, and I, I listen, I have children, I have grandchildren, I want them to grow, I want them to live, but I think of the world that they're in and I think, Lord, come quickly, because that'll all be over. First Thessalonians chapter 2, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Christ at his coming? His joy is he's going to go to heaven with all these people that got saved. Our joy, part of it, is that we all go to heaven together. One Lord. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. He is not just Messiah or Savior, because He's not your Savior unless He is first your Lord. Lord means ultimate authority. You know, it, it brings up to mind the conversations when Peter is correcting Jesus. Lord, not that. <laughs> well, how can you call Him Lord and then disobey? I mean, I know because I've done it. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God also has ex- highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ultimate authority. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in your hope of you're calling one Lord and one faith. Now, Paul is not here talking about generic faith, having faith in faith. I mean, I've actually seen that. People say that on, on TV. Oh, I just have faith in faith. I just have faith. In what? Faith is not, not even helpful unless the object of your faith is actually worthy of that faith. You know, atheists have faith. They have faith in all kinds of things that probably don't deserve their faith. I think about that every time I get in a plane. I have faith that this plane is going to take me where I'm going to go. I don't know anything about the laws of physics regarding lift and speed and all of that stuff that the wings and the engine are going to overcome to get me where I'm going. But I've been on a plane, and it got me to where I'm going. So I have a certain amount of faith in the fact that this plane is going to get me there. But you know, some planes don't get to where they're going. Kind of more like a probability than faith. But We have a description of Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. We read in chapter 1, verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I thought it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for, here it is, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He's speaking here of the body of the truth of Jesus Christ, the whole body of that, all all included, the whole picture. It's what the Scriptures reveal about Him. It's what we have come to know with a personal relationship with Him, the faith. There aren't multiple faiths worthy of trust and hope. There is one faith, one way through Jesus Christ to God the Father. There's not a separate faith for Jews, another for Gentiles, another for Muslims. They're not all separate but equal. They're just different. There is one true faith for all. Jesus Christ is Savior of all. There is no other way to the Father except through Him. One baptism. Now this one's a little more confusing. One baptism. We believe in full immersion. Sprinkling. There's sprinkling. There's baptism of infants. There's, you know, one baptism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul, the Apostle Paul explains, For we're, by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Therefore Jews or Greeks, neither slaves nor free, have all been made to drink into one Spirit. That's the baptism that the other external baptisms are demonstrating. We've been baptized into the body 
And so we do a public baptism to show what has happened internally. Paul also writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. One baptism, the, the Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ. There's one body, one spirit, just as you recall, with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We have the last of the ones. The seventh one is God, the Father of us all. It's interesting, there are many terms that we use to refer to God nowadays. The ultimate mind, the first cause the ultimate cause, the diviner, the infinite being, the big man upstairs. They're not necessarily wrong. They're just inadequate. They're, he is so much more than that. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. He is present everywhere all the time. He is all-knowing. Any one of those, you just sit for a while and ponder that. It just blows your mind. God knows everything. Everything that ever will happen, He still knows. You know, one of those things that God can't do is learn. He does not learn. That, that thought alone just blows my mind. What would it be like to not have to learn? I'm not there yet. I don't know. If any of you are, let me know. Once you've been adopted into his family through belief in his son, there's only one way to adequately address him as father, or as Jesus said, Abba, Daddy. Incidentally, years ago I had a friend, I'd pray with him. I love praying with him. He had a very, very simple, sincere faith. But he would start his prayers with, Daddy, would you please fix this? Man. When Jesus taught us to pray, Matthew 6, Luke 11, he tells us to address God as Father. Not the big man upstairs. You know, I used to play trumpet at Disney, and we did the, the candlelight ceremony. I did that several years. And one of the years, Louis Gossett Jr. was there, and he had just finished reading the Gospel of Luke in the candlelight procession. And then at the end he says, you know, folks, I would like to thank whatever higher power brought me here tonight. And I thought, did, did you just read anything that make any sense to you at all? I like Louis Gossett Jr. It just, I, just, I was blown away by that. You're at a Christian ceremony, the only Christian thing that Disney does. Whatever power. Anyway. Romans 8.15, did you all receive the spirit of bondage again to fear? but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Abba, Father. You know, there's a lot of things you learn when you first become a parent. A lot of joys. There's heartache too, and that comes with the territory. But the first time your child says, Daddy, something you never forget. Now we have grandchildren. The grandchildren say, Ah, Papa, Papa. You want to light up my day? That's all I need. That's the relationship we have. Now, I know I had a friend who had a... This, understanding this, but like many verses in the Bible, we sometimes bring baggage to this. And I had a friend who had a real rough childhood. His father did not treat him kindly. And so, hearing that God is this heavenly father did not sound that great to him. And we can struggle with things like that. But it's not the way God intended it to be. It's carrying the baggage of the struggle we have in our lives. And God is so different 
so other, so holy, that we need to be careful what preconceived ideas we bring to this relationship. God is the perfect father, not just a good father. He is the best father. He doesn't suffer from any of the problems that we have that we bring to this world. So these six verses in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians have, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, been given to us as, as part of this guide to, to be worthy of the title Christian. So, as the Apostle Paul is going on to teach about how we are to live as Christians, the design of the church, you know, the, the other things that he talks about, marriage and family and relationships and, and, and all this other stuff that's going to follow, spiritual warfare, all of that hinges on this part. It's all built on the stuff before it. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Our attitude should be lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. We should work to keep the unity that has been given to us in the Holy Spirit, and peace will be our bond. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are the body of Christ. When we walk worthy, when we are in unity in, in the spirit of the Lord, we're being Christians as God has designed us to be. We will reflect him. We will be transparently just showing him forth. And we will change the world just as he's called us to do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. You know, as I think about this passage, I, I know I can't do it on my own. None of us can. And that's why you give us your spirit. So I pray, Lord, you would fill us fresh with your spirit tonight. Help us to be transparent, to be changed, to allow you to do the surgery on our hearts that needs to be done because we fall in so many of these areas. Help us to be worthy of the title, the name of Christian in all that that means. And I pray, Lord, as well, if there's someone here tonight who is struggling with understanding or committing their life to Jesus, I pray that you would speak to them now. Let them know that this is the, the most incredible exchange they will ever make. It's the best deal they will ever make, exchanging their life for yours. And I just pray, Lord, that you administer all those who are hurting tonight as well. You would bless your church. You would watch over and you would protect us. And we ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.